Welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. You know, Thanksgiving is a time to show our gratitude for our friends, our family, and to all that we have in life. This year will be quite different for a lot of folks and uh, no large gatherings for families and friends and, you know, no out to the restaurant, but it's still an important time for reflection and thankfulness for all that we have and finding new ways to express gratitude. We should always acknowledge those that sacrifice so much for the rest of us, our servicemen and women and their families. And this year especially, we'd be remiss if we didn't also include the frontline healthcare workers and first responders who have sacrificed so much, continue to sacrifice so much for the greater good during this pandemic. Now, Henry Van Dyke once said, gratitude in the inward feeling of kindness received is the inward feeling of kindness received. Thankfulness is the natural impulse to express that feeling. Thanksgiving is following that impulse. And that's absolutely true. And this year, I think, though we seem to have and we think we have so much to be angry about, we definitely have so much more to be thankful about. My guest today is here to share her family story of sacrifice, dedication, and resilience. Their life was forever changed back in 2010 where her husband, Charles Allen III, was severely injured after stepping on a 40-pound IED while on a dismounted patrol in Afghanistan. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, and I know it's ridiculous, and I, sometimes I almost feel like it sounds cliche when I say thank you for your service, but I do say thank you for your service, not just to your husband, but I say it to you and your family. A lot of people don't understand that, you know, for every veteran, there's a family that serves right along with them. And on this Thanksgiving Day, we as a nation should count you as one of the best things that we can th- be thankful for. Thank you. And I appreciate all the work that you do for Fisher House because without you, we couldn't keep Fisher House going. Well, you know what? I mean, we're going to work at it. I'm going to work at it, work at it, work at it, and work at, you know, continuing efforts for our veterans as much as I can. I mean, I, as long as I have a breath and can be heard, I'm going to continue to sing our praises and make people understand that we have to stop and remember that, you know, I think it's like less than 0.03% of this entire nation mm-hmm. defends the democracy and liberties that we have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we live in such tough times as we do right now, and we see the numbers of enlistees going down, you know, it won't be long before this country may end up having to go back to a draft mm-hmm. to fill its ranks. And, mm-hmm. Most people don't even remember what that's like. We've got two generations, almost three generations that don't even know what a draft is. But we'll wake up really kind of crazy when all of a sudden they get a notice in the mail that says report to duty. And they be like, right? You know, let's talk a little bit though, Jessica, and talk a little bit about, you know, where this all really began. Well, let's go back and talk about when you first met Charles and what life was like before his deployment in Afghanistan. When did the two of you first meet? Uh, so we met in 1999. We actually met on a blind date. Um, I was a college junior at the time at Kentucky Wesleyan in Owensboro, Kentucky. He was stationed at Fort Campbell, but my mom lived in Nashville. So I was home for the summer. I bartended and waited tables all throughout college. You know, like the good old American story, bartended and waited tables to pay my way through, right? And uh, we met on a blind date. I did everything I could to run him off. 
because I wanted to finish my degree. I was going to law school. I had a plan. It did not include romance of any form, shape, or fashion. Um, but I, I mean, apparently he stuck around. We have our 20th wedding anniversary in February. So apparently it worked out because I'm still here. <laughs> um, no, it was it was just one of those easy things. It was the easiest uh, relationship I've ever had, still is, believe it or not. It's our relationship is based on humor and patience and communication, which a lot of people do not understand that key word of communication. And I think that, um, you know, sometimes you're just that you just find your person you're meant to be with and it works for us. And so this next year, we're kind of giggling about it. We have our 20th wedding anniversary, but it'll be 10 years with legs and 10 years without legs. We had our 10th wedding anniversary at Walter Reed. So yeah, it's kind of just, you know, blows you back for there for a minute when you realize 10 years with 10 years without. Um, but yeah, we're going to, we're going to do something. I don't know what, but we'll do something to celebrate. And then, um, we stayed at Campbell for pretty much all of Chaz's career. He deployed to Kosovo, Korea, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The girls and I stayed put, um, January 22nd, 2011, he was out on a dismounted patrol and stepped on a 40 pound bomb and changed our lives forever. And before you even go there, let me back up for a second. So you got married again in 2000, I mean, 1999. We got married in 2001. We met in 99. Okay, you met in 99. You got married in 2001. When did you have your first child? 2002. She was a welcome surprise. <laughs> you had a second child. But 2005. 2005. Okay, and the two of you obviously were traveling around with your husband. And where were you stationed during that period? We were actually stationed at Fort Campbell the entire time because Chaz became a part of this um, new protocol that the Army pushed through where they were locking the guys in to where hopefully the families could build on a little bit more stability. It was a new approach to combat because they, they realized between 2002 and 2005 that the families needed to connect with each other to get through this. They realized we were going to be at war for a while. And we picked up a crazy op tempo, one year home, one year deployed. And um, that's why we got, we got locked in at Campbell. It, it's a rare phenomenon you know, but it, it did happen to us, it happened to many other families. Um, we look at it as a blessing because we were able to give our girls stability. We were able to build relationships around the community. Um, Fort Campbell has always been great to us, even though we now live two and a half hours south. They still check in on us. Uh, we're a proud 101st family. But yeah, we're the weirdos that stayed at Campbell the whole time. <laughs> well, so your girls got to go to school, public schools or, mm -hmm. or base schools, military base schools? My girls are in public school. Public schools. Okay, so, you know, your Chaz deployed. How many times did he deploy before he was in his accident? Or the accident? Um, he just did Kosovo and Iraq. So Kosovo was 2000, Iraq was 2005, 2006. Okay, so he came back and now then all of a sudden it's time to go on another deployment. When did he leave for that deployment? Uh, the fall of 2010. 2010. And in your mind, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, if you understand what I'm trying to do, I want people at home who don't understand military life to kind of get a little snapshot of what was going through your heart and through your mind. Third deployment, you're thinking, oh, here we go, another easy deployment. He's going to be gone, but we'll get through this, right? Mm -hmm. So, no, not this one. Um, we were given a briefing that if we could get passports, it was highly advised because where the guys were going was not a very good area. 
So um, interestingly enough, my passport arrived the day I dropped Chaz at base to deploy. I came back and my passport was in the mailbox. And now looking back at that, it's kind of one of those foreboding type things that happened. Um, but I didn't get to use my passport because they were able to get him home to us faster than I could get to him. Uh, it, it was it was a very overwhelming deployment. Uh, we were expecting way more injuries and KIAs, which fortunately didn't happen. And I don't know if that's for me, I believe it's the advancements in medical technology that the army worked so hard on because when Chaz was in Iraq in 05 and 06, he lost over 30 guys. Wow. We stopped counting. We, I literally could not do it anymore. I couldn't go to any more services. I was done. It was exhausting. And that's when PTSD came home to our house was 05, 06. So wow. when he, well, I'm sorry. Down a little bit so that, you know, people at home understand it. So Oh five oh six. He's deployed mm-hmm. and it loses almost thirty people. He's already been severely impacted by deployment, correct? And so has your family, mm-hmm. right? correct? That's that's when war came home, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's hard for people to understand that because you only see the war wounds that you can see. You can't see those invisible wounds. But my husband PTSD did not have a real name then. If he was to mention it, the army would have uh, forced his retirement. So we had to deal with it, just the two of us. And I unfortunately had to give him the ultimatum. Like if you can, you can do this or you can, you can work on this with me. We can work on this together or you can lose all three of your girls. And what kind of symptoms was he demonstrating back then? It's 2006, 2007. So sleepless, sleeplessness, night terrors, things like that. Um, anger, lots of anger. Um, he had uh, hypervigilance, always, always on alert, always on alert, did not, uh, had a hard time trusting anyone. Um, there were, his deployment was really, really rough. And I mean, it was so rough, they wrote a book on it and covered it. And now they're using that book as a leadership tool in classes because it was such a breakdown in leadership. Um, but yeah, just really the anger. It was just controlling the anger. And it's like I say to people all the time, whenever anyone you know says like PTSD is new or whatever, I'm like, no, find me a veteran who deployed. And you, I guarantee you, they have some some range of PTSD. You can't go to combat and not have it. In every war in the past. Correct. Absolutely. So you guys are are making it through 2007, mm-hmm. eight. And then he gets orders. He's going to deploy again, right? 2009? Uh, 2010, yes. And when those orders came in, you know, I mean, again, were you, was there trepidation? Were you afraid? I know what you said about the fact that your passport came. But, I mean, when you guys, he, he must have come home and said, ah, looks like I got to be deployed again in a month, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what was, what was the conversation in the house over dinner then? Um. He, even when he was home, this was, this is hard for many civilians to understand. Even though my husband was home, my husband wasn't home because my husband was constantly gone to training. He was at JTR, JTRC or, or whatever it is in Fort Polk, Louisiana. Then he was at NTC in California. Then he was at Breacher's Course in North Carolina. He taught at the NCO Academy for two years. And that was 15 days on four days off. So this deployment was only supposed to be like 10 months or so. So for us, that was kind of exciting because his, um, his, Moved to Korea was 18 months and Iraq was a year. So we're looking at like the shortest one we've ever done. 
And we were kind of just okay with it because we've been there, done that. And we're just like, whatever, it just is what it is. And we were so focused on the girls because at this point, the girls are going to be in kindergarten and third grade. So we were really just focused on raising our girls. And I was working on myself. I had begun my own tax preparation company and had found out that I was getting my financial counselor's license through a fellowship I had been awarded. So I was really working on my professional development and keeping myself distracted to not think about the deployment, (laughs) Um, which is what I always advise because it makes the days go faster. And that countdown chain, you're just ripping them off and you get through them a little bit quicker and it makes it a little bit easier to deal with. Um, So I wasn't worried. I mean, they briefed us, they gave us a great briefing, but I just didn't let it get to me, if that makes any sense. And, And I'm not saying I didn't think it could happen to me. I was very much aware we've lost so many friends. Um, so many friends have been injured. I, I was very much aware it could happen to us, but I just didn't let those thoughts take roost in my brain. Gotcha. So it's like you now 2010, he gets on a plane, he flies out, you get your passport. He's gone first year, okay. And what happened in that 10 month thing? I mean, I thought he was only gone for 10 months. What happened? Yeah, he came home for a little R&R that fall. And we always did this fun thing called happy everything. So when dad was gone for long amounts of time, we would do all the holidays in one day and we'd make a big deal of it for the girls and they got a happy everything gift. And I love that now that my girls are 18 and 15, they talk about that. So it's really fun to hear their great memories. Um, so he came home for a little bit and then he went back. And then in January, um, we got the call. And just let, let take me through that. I, I don't want to, I'm sorry to, to take you back and make you have to relive it. But, you know, again, make those people at home understand. Yeah. So you were at home. Had you had there been any other injuries before this? Any of those other guys that you knew about? No, he was the only one. Um, so it was a Saturday morning. It was January twenty second. I actually was going downstairs to work on a tax return um, before the girls got up, and they were set to go to dance that day. And I was actually supposed to be dance mom, so I was supposed to get all the kids were supposed to be dropped at my house, and then I ran the the dance bus, as we call it. And instead, um, my sister calls and she's, she's in panic and she happened to be at my mom's house and said, I I don't know what's going on, but mom is really upset. And she said, the army has called and she said, you're, you'll know what that means. And for you to call this number. And so my sister, who is a critical care nurse, by the way, so she's very familiar with trauma. But the only person I had ever involved in this conversation was my mother. I didn't want to upset my family. I didn't want them to think about these things yet. Um, So I said to my sister, I said, okay, so uh, what this means is there's something really wrong with Chaz. And I I have it set up to where mom will be with me in case I have to be notified. And so that's what they're preparing you for. And my sister just was just silence, just absolutely silence, silence. And I said, it's okay. I'm just, I'm just going to need y'all to come to the house today. So if that's okay. And my sister said, you know, absolutely. We'll be there within the hour. Uh, just let me call out from work. And she was like, what do I do? What do I do? I said, well, give me that number. And that, that's literally all you can do is just come. And she said, okay. And so I uh, hung up with them. I called the, um, the army and, you know, gave them my information and they just, said, um, the poor guy, I'll never forget him. He, he had such a hard time telling me it was, it was just really, really hard. And so finally I just said, I need you to read the piece of paper because I need to know what's going on. And he said, okay. 
he said, I'm really sorry to do this because your husband is such a great guy. And I said, okay, but I need you to read that piece of paper because you have what I need today. And he said, yes, ma'am. And so he read the piece of paper and just um, said that, you know, the 101st was there for me and they do anything they could. And I said, okay, so what do I do now? And he said, you have to call this phone number. And I said, okay. So I had to call another phone number and um, it went really well. <laughs> um, the people in the army are, are very well trained to give absolutely horrible information. But, um, the, at the time when these phone calls are going on, these kids are getting dropped off at my house. So I want you to think about, I'm trying to make these horrible phone calls, absolutely horrible phone calls. And also get these kids where they need to be, which if any mom can understand, they understand how crazy and how insane that would be. And, um, our friend Chris was dropping his kids off and Chris was uh, a soldier as well. And so it, of course, upset him because, you know, we're trying to figure out what's going on. And um, they're telling you in this, when they read the piece of paper that he survived. No. What did they say to you? Um, they simply said that he was on a dismounted patrol and uh, that was all they had at the time. And that the initial report was he didn't look good. Ugh. Yeah. So they needed to know where I was going to be for casualty notification. And if I could please remain in that one spot and not leave until further updates, that's what they, and, and bless his heart. He literally read it word for word off the piece of paper and, um, God love him. Cause I know that had to have been so hard to tell your buddy's wife what was going on and thinking that your friend was dead, you know? So it was, it was really hard. Wow. So you, know, you made that second call. Yeah, I made the second call, uh, which actually brought good news. But I had in the mean in the in between the calls, I had gotten the kids. Uh, I gave them to our friend and just said, he, he said, you know, don't worry about it. I got it. I'll send my wife over. I said, that'd be great. Um, he's like, just keep us posted, posted and tell us what we have to do. And I said, OK. And um, um, oh, and then I called my best friend because, you know, you got to call your best friend. Right. That's like kind of the written rule. Um, so my best friend is actually one of my sorority sisters. She's actually my little for my sorority. And um, we have been there for each other through incredible, incredible adversity. Um, and so I, I literally, all I said to her was, it's my turn. And what I was referring to was her husband had been diagnosed with cancer, not even six months before that. And all four of us are the same age. So we're all sitting here going, okay, we're, we're in our thirties. Like, this is not fair. Right. <laughs> and all I said was it's my turn. And she knew exactly what I meant. And so, uh, we had a little crying fit, you know, lots of tears. And then she said, okay, you got to call that army number. And I said, yeah, you're right. I do. I got to call them. And then when I called them, um, the it, luckily enough time had passed between getting the kids off to dance and calling my best friend that they had an update on him and he was stable. And so that was an incredible blessing. So I guess like a little bit of distraction paid off um, because hearing your husband stable after the first phone call, I went from literally went from the floor all the way up. Like I, I honestly was like, I just, I, I couldn't even tell you what else the person said because when she said stable, I was so happy. I didn't care. Literally didn't care. Well, let me hold you right there. As I pay for the bills and we come back, I want to continue 
talking about you know, how your family has gotten through this and, you know, the fact that it's not just, again, Chris, but it's you and your girls. I mean, you know, you, you had a very interesting quote that says the military children were drafted into service at birth. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But I got to take a break. And I, th- I want to thank all of you for tuning in today to listen to this edition of Free Thinking with Montana. Our guest today is Jessica Allen, who's a veteran's wife and one who, when we're thinking about Thanksgiving this week and we're thinking about the things that we're thankful for, it's people like Jessica who have served along with her loved one, her family member, her husband, and really been there to help support and defend this Constitution of the United States. And, you know, if we have anything to be thankful for at this time of year, it's families like this. So let me take a little break. We'll come back. We'll hear more. Jessica Allen's story. We'll be back right after this. Thanks for tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. Hey, guys, again, thanks so much for tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. And our guest today is the wife of a Army veteran, Mr. Charles Allen, who was severely injured after stepping on a 40-pound IED while on disbanded patrol in Afghanistan. Jessica Allen's here with us today. She's been telling the story of what her family has been through. And as we listen to the tough details, we also know that those are tough details that lead to thank you because he's still here, still part of family. And we have to say, like we all say, thank you for your service. It doesn't just represent the service member. It represents their entire family. So Jessica Allen, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for your service, my dear. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, when we uh, took a break, you were just telling us about that second call that you, you uh, got that said your husband is stable. Um, after hearing that he had just stepped on his 40-pound IED, or did you even know what the injury was from? Uh, the only thing I knew was he was on a dismounted patrol and he detonated the IED. Got it. Got it. So now when he was stable, he was still in Afghanistan. Correct. And then what did they do? They flew him from Afghanistan to Germany or? Yes. So he went from Battlefield Hospital to Kandahar, Kandahar to Langstuhl, and then finally to Walter Reed. And how many days did it take for him to get there? He, okay. So in my time frame, because you know, time zones are different, right? So my time frame was 8 a.m. Saturday morning was the first phone call to, I got to see him on that Wednesday, which yeah. was quite fast. Quite fast. And, and yeah, to get him all the way halfway around the world in the condition that he was in. Did you know the extent of his injuries? Yes. Um, they, he was originally destined for San Antonio, Texas, because my husband's from Oklahoma. And so whenever we have a catastrophically wounded service member, we try to get them as close to home as possible. But unfortunately his body couldn't take any more airtime. And so when they landed, um, outside of Walter Reed, the people who assessed him said, no, he's not going, he's going to stay here. We, he, you know, he was, he still looked really, really good, but he was just, it was, he was, his body was done. Um, they had operated on him multiple times a day for multiple days and then stuck him on a plane. And I mean, they have a protocol which works, right? I mean, they, the army medicine, oh my gosh, army medicine is absolutely phenomenal. Um, that protocol works. And so they got him safely to Walter Reed. And then when they assessed him, they were like, nope, that's it. He's staying here. Uh, which came to be one of the biggest blessings because, because we were at Walter Reed, um, we made so many amazing friendships. We were blessed again and again and again. 
and, you know, with Fisher House, with different friendships, all these things, uh, you know, you look back at it and you're just like, wow, you got to love that, that divine intervention that just comes along that path where you're sitting there and you're suffering and you don't know what to do. And then you look back and you're like, all right, well, that was kind of cool. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, I know you probably didn't even know that Fisher House existed when you heard of the injury, correct? So then No, actually I did. Um, I had a Girl Scout troop and my Girl Scout troop actually in 2010 collected donations uh, to stock Fisher House's pantry at, at Fort Campbell. Absolutely crazy. Incredible. And so you knew that you wanted to be with your husband doing his recovery. Mm -hmm. and, you know, just think about that for a second. Explain to people, you know, the fact that what people don't understand is even if you decided to go in to DC and try to find a Motel 6. A Motel 6 was probably gonna cost you 80 bucks, not that 1999, but probably about 60, 70 bucks. And then you would have had to, you know, back then there was no Uber, so you would have either had to got a car service or, or taken a taxi. And you would have probably put out a couple hundred dollars a day mm -hmm. with your husband. And what, the, did you reach out to Fisher House immediately? What happened? No, so the protocol at Walter Reed was, um, a very nice army person picks you up at the airport and they actually check into check you into a, I had to be checked into a hotel. There was no availability at the Fisher house when I first got to Walter Reed. And so um, the army at that time had not appropriated funds to where they could put me in a hotel down the street. But the problem was where Walter Reed is located. And I'm sure you remember this because I know you used to visit Walter Reed. The original Walter Reed was not located in a very good area. Right. So we had to be shuttled way down the road in Maryland and so um, I used to have to ride a bus back and forth in the beginning until a Fisher House room became available. And then, oh my gosh, such a blessing because I could just walk down the street at Walter Reed rather than waiting for the shuttle bus and praying that it showed up both ways. And, you know, you're spending all day at the hospital. I mean, sometimes I would just stay the night in Chaz's hospital room and just make that stupid, uncomfortable chair into a bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's hideous. Oh yeah, but I did it. I did it uh, more days than I want to count because my back probably can still tell you the stories of it. Uh, but we did it. I, I, it's really I, I know that feeling in a way. I, you know, I, about two years ago, almost two and a half years ago, I suffered a very, very catastrophic uh, hemorrhagic stroke, and my wife slept for the first three of thirty days on a cot and I'm not a cot on that, on that ugly little chair in the corner until they bought her in a cot that she was able to sleep on. And she stayed there at the hospital with me. So I kind of understand, you know, and I think what people don't understand is how important it is to have family right there with you when mm -hmm. you are convalescing. You know, um, I think the only thing that uh, really kept me alive was the fact that I heard her say, I love you when I woke up and heard her say, I love you when I went to sleep. And I don't remember anything in between sleeping or waking. I just remember waking up and she was there. And then all of a sudden I would go to sleep and she was there. And that's what made me want to look forward to waking up again the next day. And the next five or six hours later, I wanted to wake up to see her again. So, you know, I understand what Chaz was going through. He probably didn't have a chance to articulate it that way, but you know, for the person who is convalescing, it is just, you know, the most important thing in life to have someone you love right there beside you. Yeah. My favorite story that Chaz told um, in an interview one time, they asked him, how did you know that everything was going to be okay? And he said, well, because he said he was so, he had so much anxiety about me walking into his room for the first time and seeing him. 
And he said, my wife walks in. And the first thing she says to me is it's tax season. Couldn't you have waited a little bit longer? (laughs) And he said, I knew at that moment, my wife is in here cracking jokes. We are good. Right. 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 So you, how many days did you end up spending that for that? And no, we should talk about it. I mean, and I'm sorry we have to, but Chaz uh, ended up losing two legs, both legs, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did he have? So he lost uh, both legs above the knee. He also lost his right elbow, which a lot of people get confused because you see his arm, um, but his elbow is gone. They were able to save his arm, uh, but his arm is fused in a roughly 90 degree angle. It's at the perfect angle for him to wheel his wheelchair around. Um, he does have full dexterity in his hand, but there's no movement in his wrist or his elbow. Um, he also has a, a pretty severe back injury, hearing loss. Um, he's had three flesh eating bacterias because of the germs that were blown into his body cavity. Mm. Uh, I think that's it. I don't know. There's a banker's box full of fun stuff, fun reading, you know? <laughs> wow. And, you know, when you explain it that way, it's, it sounds like, okay, well, then they fixed it all about a month and then he went home. But that's not true. This is no. injuries that he sustained and continued to deal with and have to be treated for course of how many years? So he, okay, so we started at Walter Reed. Um, at the beginning of that, I flew back and forth between Chaz and the girls because the girls were still in school. Uh, my mom luckily lived in Nashville. So my mom would come up and be me. And then I would fly off to DC. I did that every week. I was in the Nashville airport and the DC airport, switching out between Chaz and the girls every week from January to May. And then um, Chaz was finally discharged from inpatient care in May. We came home for a short visit um, in June. And then they rushed us back to the hospital because they found a flesh eating bacteria in his back and the, the information didn't come back until we were at home, unfortunately. So we had to rush him back there. So he went back inpatient right after being discharged. Then we stayed at Walter Reed for another year and a half doing PTOT, infectious disease, wound care, the list goes on and on. Um, and then he was finally medically retired January, 2013. We came home to Clarksville, Tennessee at the time. Uh, then in March, 2013, Chaz developed another flesh-eating bacteria. This was now his third. His first one was within weeks of getting to the hospital at Walter Reed. It was about, it was the week that he got there. Um, he went from ICU to the regular floor and I kissed his forehead and, and said he had a fever. And we realized that was flesh-eating bacteria number one. The number two was June of that same year. And then number three was March, 2013. Um, that one actually almost killed him. It uh, it was a flesh-eating bacteria that is found in livestock in Afghanistan. It went to sever his spine and devour him from inside out. So infectious disease, had the civilian version, because we had the civilian care. Um, sadly, the VA could not see my husband for his medical needs in March, 2013. And thank goodness we had TRICARE. And so I rushed him through uh, civilian care and they treated him like a rock star, which he had a blast with that. They were so fun. Um, considering the severity of the issue, they were really fun. And so they they got in there and were just like, we're going to fix this. And we're going to, we don't want you to ever have this again. And knock on wood, we've not had any more flesh-eating bacteria. Hopefully we won't have any more. But that's something we have to constantly watch for with Chaz. Because they just don't know how many are in there. And they're going to remain dormant. 
Um, this is developing research that we're just getting, he's, he's literally just every day he's alive. It's, you know, we're adding to that data bucket, you know, keeping him going. Um, so we have to watch for him. So anytime Chaz has flu-like symptoms, I don't think about the flu. My brain automatically goes to another flesh-eating bacteria because that's real. Um, we could be visiting this, who knows how many times. He also developed shingles. So we've had several routes with shingles. Um, oh, we've had so much fun. You were talking about prosthetics and how the wounds open back up. We've dealt with that. We've dealt with pressure sores. Um, his back, the last flesh-eating bacteria, took so much out of his back, they had to put some uh, fake fat back in. And so, and uh, he's got the uh, degenerative disc disease as well. So he walks in PT. We sit, he goes to PT twice a week and that is through Medicare and TRICARE. Um, our local VA does not have physical therapy for him. So we use it on the civilian market. I uh, cannot speak highly enough about our civilian care. We have a beautiful system. They take care, they make him walk twice a week. They push him to where he can be at his max capacity without overdoing. Um, you know, people ask me all the time about Chaz going back to work. We're still trying to get pain under control. So once we can get pain under control, we can have the Chaz going back to work conversation. But until then, we're just trying to get him, you know, get pain under control and, and he wants to walk. So those are our two primary goals. And when you say, our primary goes, you're talking about you and your daughters also. Talk about the strength and resiliency of your two daughters throughout this entire journey. They are amazing. So the the oldest one, Darren, um, she's now 18. She was eight when um, her dad was hurt. So that was 2011. In 2007, Darren's classmate's dad was killed in a training accident. So when I sat them down to talk to them, the first thing Darren asked was, is dad like Mr. Dave? And so I had to tell her, no, dad is, dad is very seriously injured, but not Mr. Dave. And life is going to change a whole lot. And she was my pacekeeper. Like she just kept us focused and going. And we kind of changed the dialogue with our girls at that moment. We kind of had to talk to them in more of adult terms than I think you should talk to five and eight-year-olds. Um, but Darren, I can't tell you how many times we had to tell her to stop being a parent because she just would jump in there and help with her sister. Um, Ryan was so little, she's only five. So she pretty much just did, just was like along for the ride. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but Darren's our, our resilient, amazing, strong girl. And we're so proud of her. She's now off at college. What's she studying? Uh, biology. I would bet. Yeah. She wants to be a doctor. She is not sure. She um, sometimes she'll talk about forensics. Sometimes she'll talk about germs. Sometimes she'll. I mean, I don't know. There, there's no telling which path this girl's going to take. Gotcha. And I mean, you know, they've got to be just incredibly proud of their dad for working as hard as he has been working in this recovery process, right? Yes. Well, and the the nice thing about what happened to us is, if Chaz wouldn't have been injured, he would have continued to deploy. So the girls would have continued to watch their dad come and go. So the high point of this is the girls have had, they've gotten to really know their father, like really know him. We had to homeschool when we were in DC. It was such a mess. Um, the girls were the only school age children there for a long time. No one knew how to connect us to the school system. We just hit hiccup after hiccup. So my girlfriend was like, girl, just homeschool. You'll be fine. The girls are five and eight. You have a degree. You got this. 
And so we did. And it was wonderful because we would sit and have lessons together. We would learn things together. Uh, Chaz will tell you, would t- if he was here, he would tell you that he learned math <laughs> through um, school. Gotcha. <laughs> so we just literally made the best out of it. But, you know, it's, it, the cool part is now, 10 years later, listening to the girls and their favorite memories of that time and knowing that the majority of their memories are positive ones, not negative ones. I mean, they can tell you some of the the scary stuff like, um, you know, Darren, she told me that when when Chaz, when we got him home and he had to be put back in the civilian hospital, she was extremely scared because she thought we were good. And like most civilians think, oh, you're home, you're good. You don't have any more problems. And Darren was thinking the same thing. And so it, it kind of wrecked her a little bit. And anytime dad falls, you know, that's a scary moment because, you know, what if he breaks another bone? What if he hurts his back further? Um, it's like we tell Darren all the time, you go off to college, we got this. But she's told me, you know, she thinks about it and she wonders and, you know, what, and kind of worries about us a little bit. But, you know, we've told her, you've got to go do you. And not worry about us. And it, it's it's got to be hard on her, but she's doing well. So um, little sister is now a sophomore in high school. We do have her in a private school. Uh, Ryan has epilepsy. And she also has dyslexia, dyscalculia, and um, some other issues. And so the private school environment is just better for her. We needed the small class size. And we needed the, the, um, the more... I guess, small group environment for her just, just to support her. And unfortunately, Ryan, um, she had a little dip in her epilepsy journey a couple months back in August and Darren was off at college and she was worried and we were, you know, we just had to tell her, we, you know, we got this just like with dad, everything's fine. You know, we just gotta go. We're going to have to have a sleepover at the hospital, but everything is fine. And Ryan's doing fine now. She's off at school today. So, um, you just keep moving forward. Got to keep moving forward. Your family was regionally, you know, featured in the documentary Sky Bosses. What was that like for you? And why was it important for you to have your story told there? Um, so it, it, as you know, it's not really fun having a camera follow you everywhere. <laughs> it's kind of annoying. <laughs> um, but our crew was phenomenal. They were so fun. They, I think they had as much fun as we did because it, what you see in the documentary, that's us. Like, it's real. There was no... No script, no made up stuff. We are really that crazy. We are really that silly. We really do have that much fun. Um, For me, when Richard asked um, for us to participate, it was a hands down absolute. This journey, the thing that has frustrated me the most is how people don't even know that our children exist. People don't ask about our kids. Um, The ignorance towards our children is appalling. when our daughter was awarded a scholarship for her education, one of her classmates said, well, why does she get a scholarship? She's not the one who got hurt. Wow. If that doesn't sum up the disconnection of America and service. Correct. I mean, really, um, how can you say, you know, her dad stepped on a bomb. She's not hurt. We literally ripped her away from everything. We, we, she didn't get a choice. It, and, you know, normally when you PCS in the military, you're given orders, the moving truck comes and things like that happen. We didn't do that with our kids. It was literally dad's in the hospital, get your suitcase, get your stuff. We'll buy more things. Absolutely. Yeah. 
But people don't understand, again, like we started this, you know, I mean, when one member of a family serves, the entire family serves. And especially if that member of the family is injured this way, the entire family will continue to serve throughout the rest of their lives. And I guess, you know, as we live in a society that's trying their best to forget that we were ever in these two wars, in these wars, you know, it's stories like yours that remind us that they were real. And, you know, again, like I say, it's Thanksgiving weekend. You know, people are sitting back groaning and complaining about what they should be thankful for. This is what they really should be thankful for is families like yours. What other advice would you give to another family who has, you know, children and if that are caregivers like yours? Communication is key. Um, I got the best advice from the kids pediatrician years ago. And she said, um, let the kids ask the questions. And when the kids stop asking the questions, you stop talking because their brains will ask the questions that they need answers to. So when they stop asking, you stop talking because their brain needs to process the information they're receiving. And don't, you know, some, some of this is difficult to talk about, but if your kids know that you, they can come to you with these issues, if they can communicate with you, that will help you all the way down the road. And it, that doesn't matter if your kid, if your husband's wounded or not, communication is so important when you're raising your children, they need to know that you are there for them. You, they need to know they can come to you with anything. Um, I will tell you my girls, you know, when Chaz was hurt, um, I was prepared for everything. And the first question the girls asked me, it was from Darren. She said, okay, dad's missing both of his legs. And I said, yes. And she said, well, but how does he go to the bathroom? <laughs> because that she was eight and at the time going to the bathroom was important to her. And so we had to have that conversation and, you know, I didn't really want to have that conversation, but guess what I did. And so that told her, Hey, I can ask mom questions. And the one thing I said to her is sometimes on this journey, the answer really is, I don't know. And we all have to be happy with that answer. It can be frustrating and you can be mad. And you can cry and you can be angry, but sometimes the answer is, I don't know. And we have to find peace in that answer. And I think that that's helped our girls with resiliency. I think that's helped them live. We live in a rural area. We, there's very, very little military here. And of course, very, very few wounded um, veterans here. And it's, it's been very difficult for our girls. It's been hard for them to make friends because they are different. Because they were, they lived in such a diverse world before with the military and just the different ethnicities and cultures. And they love talking about how our neighbors, how we used to share our traditions. Cause my, our neighbors loved that I was from the South and I had all the Southern cooking. And so, and then we had a neighbor who was Italian and we had a neighbor who was Filipino and it was awesome. And we used to just put all of our food together. And I love that our girls love sharing that story with people and talking about how being a dad, being in the military, they got exposed to all these different things and it was wonderful and they loved it. And, you know, they come here and it's, it's carbon copies. It's the same. It's, there's not a lot of difference because it's safer to stay in your bubble. And that's the thing that we've learned here is that um, being different can sometimes be really hard and people say some really stupid things and girls need no help being mean. That is the other lesson I've learned. 
Absolutely. Well, look, you know, let's change the subject for a second. But now you are an accredited financial counselor, authored a book, Financial Fitness for Military and Veterans, Veteran Caregivers. Is there any little tips that you could share right now uh, from your book? And I hope that people go up and get it on Amazon, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it needs to be updated because Tracker has changed their policies. I don't even know how many times now because Tracker keeps changing them. Um, my one tip I always give to my clients is VA home loans are great, but make sure you research the lender because sometimes lenders will overcharge just for you using the VA privilege. And you want to make sure the VA loan is right for you. I love that the VA loan comes with a home inspector because they're usually like some of the best in the country. But sometimes the cost of that loan costs you way more than getting like a normal conventional FHA loan. Um, so make sure you're looking at that and doing doing the math for yourself rather than relying on the bank to do the math for you. And then I also suggest for my clients to seek out the military benefits in their state. Like here in Tennessee, we get two license plates for free because my husband has a purple heart. Well, that saves me $200 a year. You know, we get a discount on our property taxes. That saves a lot of money on, you know, like several hundred dollars um, in property taxes. You know, I always tell people, look out for those things. Look out for things for your kids because some states will offer free college tuition for veterans. And so you want to make sure you're you're looking into those things. Don't just assume that nothing's out there. Um, hunt it down and save yourself the money where you can. Absolutely. Good advice. Really good advice. How are you doing today, Jessica? I mean, how are you doing now? How is your family doing now? Um, we're great. We're we really are. Chaz is, you know, going to PT twice a week. He is loving life. Um he, we live out in the middle of nowhere, McMinnville, Tennessee, little bitty McMinnville, Tennessee. And uh, we love it out here. And he is mowing grass and enjoying our chickens and dogs and all that fun stuff. Um, you know, Darren is un unfortunately off at college. That's kind of hard because we were a family of four for so long. It's been hard to let her go, but we're excited for her. We're excited for her opportunities. She's loving Tennessee Tech and she's loving being a cheerleader for them. Uh, Ryan is a, is a sophomore in high school now. She's loving it there. She does clogging, tap, and jazz after school every day, or not every day, a couple times a week, and she enjoys that. Um, myself, I have a private practice. I have about 200 clients that I do taxes for and financial counseling for. And I also am a contractor for AARP, and I actually have been writing a financial guide for caregivers for AARP this year. And so hopefully that'll be published pretty soon. Excellent. Excellent. Well, hey, I can't, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, and it seems like it's a really simple answer to this one, but you know, it's Thanksgiving week. So what are you thankful for, my dear? My family. I knew that was going to be the answer. For you. <laughs> so, well, again, we are so thankful for you. Thank you so much for sharing the day on free thinking. And, you know, um, understand that, that though you may not get from the people around you in that small community, the sense of respect that so many of us have for veterans and veteran family, believe me, the respect is out there. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of us who appreciate what you do, what you've done for your husband and what you've done for all of us. Thank you. And I know that I do. I really do know that. Okay, good. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this edition of free thinking with Montel. And again, you know, I say it all the time and I'm going to say it today. Thank you for your services. A great line. You know, we say that it slips off people's lips, you know, just as quickly as good morning or how you doing when people don't turn around and look for the answer. But maybe 
instead of just saying it, you can do something. As Jessica said, there are a lot of people who live in communities that don't even know that there's a veteran family that lives down the street from you. A lot of people live in communities where there are veteran families where there may be one member of the family who's deployed right now and another member at home right now taking care of some kids. Why not go down the street, knock on the door, and when you overcook a meal tonight, put a couple plates together, take it down and just drop it off and say, hey, we're thinking about you guys. Thanks for your, thanks for your service and give them a meal. Or maybe even, you know, when you're out cutting your grass tomorrow, you know, drive back, driving lawnmower down the street and cut their grass. You know, that may make their day and put a little smile on their face. Or even how about, you know, when you know that there's a veteran couple down the street that has a child, maybe you go down and knock on the door and say, hey, let me watch your kids tonight. You know, if you want, I'll babysit for you. I live up the street. But I think you and your wife ought to have a date night. Why not? I mean, you know, just something that simple is doing something. You have to spend a lot of money. You just have to do something more than just say, thank you for your service. And I think you've done a lot today, Jessica, for a lot of people opening a lot of eyes. I want you to have a wonderful Thanksgiving and you guys continue to, to, to just inspire the way you do, okay? Thank you. Thank you. By the time, make sure you tune in to the next Free Thinking with Montel. 30 years of the Fisher House Foundation, which is dedicated to the nation's wounded, injured, and ill service members and their families. And since 1990, the impact on military families has been incredibly profound. There are over 90 Fisher Houses operated around the world. 400,000 military and veteran families have been served to date. 10 million days of free lodging have been offered. $500 million in savings to families have been provided. And on any given night, there are more than 1,200 families being served at a Fisher House around the country. And our homes are a home away from home that are offered at no cost to the military and veterans and their families, allowing them to be together while their loved ones receive specialized medical care at military and VA medical centers around the world. And ensure that they can be part of the healing process because it's so important to have a loved one around when you're going through extra procedures. Long-term stay in the hospital often thousands of miles away from the home can lead to unmanageable burdens and significant expense for our family members needing to be a part of their loved one's healing process. And since 1990, Fisher House has saved families again, $500 million worth of services, allowing families to be together during these really tough and difficult times. Other Fisher House Foundation programs include, but aren't limited to, but include a Heroes Mile program, which provides airline tickets to wounded, injured, and ill service members and their families in support of their continued recovery process through donated frequent flyer miles. Even 1,000 miles makes a big difference. Hotels for heroes. People provide free, they provide free hotel rooms to military and veteran families whose loved ones are being treated at a DOD or a VA hospital when a fish house is either full or, un or unavailable through donated hotel rooms. And Fish House Foundation is a premier national nonprofit that's been awarded a four-star charity navigator rating for over 16 years now, straight, and an A-plus rating from the Charity Watch. Fisher Houses are built to last decades and will continue to offer comforting support to veterans and their family, you know, for many more years to come. It's a gift that keeps on giving. When someone walks through the door, 
or Fisher House, we want them to know that there are those who appreciate them and their service and honor their service and are there to help them and in their really tough time and need. On any given night, like I said, up to 1,200 families can be staying at a Fisher House. And Fisher Houses are located within 300 miles of every veteran in the United States of America. All donations help the foundation and Fisher Houses around the country to provide safe or comfortable place to stay while their loved ones are undergoing care. A $10 donation can provide a family one night at a military Fisher House or help defray the cost of processing a Hero Miles ticket. Fisher Houses provide comfort and support for the families of 19-year-old, of the 19, sorry, 19-year-old combat injured service member from our current battles, as well as the families of our veterans of past military campaigns. We weren't there for World War II, Korea, or North or Vietnam. But when they returned from war wounded, the Fisher House is around now, and they help those same service members of all wars. Fisher House is only successful because of the people who choose to respond to the call to support our military families. We can't do this alone. And we salute those who have joined us. The need has grown, and so our resolve to assist these families must grow as well. This has been an incredible opportunity for me to be a board member of Fisher House because I know that the wounds of combat are both visible and invisible, whether they're burns, amputations, or post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injuries. All these medical challenges will require the ongoing presence of a veteran's family around them, and a Fisher House will support that effort and them in their time of need. Fisher House is a community where guests lean on each other. You know, everybody's staying in their own individual rooms, but support each other in their community with their common interest of supporting the sick and injured family member. Fisher House is a home where families can rest in their private suite after a long day in the hospital. There are more than 2.5 million veterans from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there are more than 19,000 veterans nationwide right now. And these men and women, as well as their families, get support from DOD and the VA hospitals around the country. The Fisher House is right there. And their goal is to build a Fisher House at every single major veterans hospital in the country. The war may be ending, but not the needs of our veterans. So many of the injuries that they have last for years. Some soldiers have to go back to the DOD or VA hospitals 20, 30, 40 times for operations. Some of this we don't know about, we don't see. We only see them when they're on the news and they're brought home and we count a number as a casualty. We don't see what happens once that amputation is first fixed. We don't see what happens a month later when it splits. We don't see a month later, or two months later when it becomes infected. We don't see a year later when it splits again from using a prosthetic. Those wounds have to be treated. And our veterans go to hospitals and some of them end up going to hospital alone because their family can't go. But that's the reason for Fisher House. It's there to help those families in time of need. And the challenges these families face can be daunting. The way they address these challenges is nothing short of inspirational. Fisher Houses are a catalyst for community support of our military and veterans and families. And they're there and they're there for the long haul. Thanks for joining me on 3 Thinking with Montel. 
Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments.